invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin our reading in verse 69 through 75. Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. This is the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. Let's give it our attention. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. What passage of Scripture would you like to have preached at your funeral? If you could choose any passage of Scripture in advance, what would it be? A few years ago, following the death of a mutual friend in the presbytery, uh, my friend, Pastor Eric Watkins, and I were on a trip together, and we took the opportunity to reflect on what text of Scripture we would like the other to preach at our respective funerals when we died. It may seem a little bit morbid, but I think it's actually quite a wonderful thing to think through in advance what Scripture is important to you that you would want proclaimed at your funeral. My friend Eric chose that beautiful passage in Colossians chapter 3, which speaks of how having been raised up with Christ, we are uh, seated with him at the right hand of God, and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. It's a beautiful passage. For my part, I, I chose the passage that we read for our call to worship this morning. Uh, and I intentionally had us read that in our call to worship and the reason I chose that passage for him to preach on, hopefully we don't die at the same time, because then I, I don't know what we'll do. Um, uh, so we can never drive in the same car or fly on the same plane, I guess. Um, nevertheless, I, I chose this passage for several reasons. First, because it's doxological. It gives glory to God. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that at each of our funerals, we don't want to bring glory to ourselves as much as we want to bring glory to God. Secondly, I chose the passage because it so beautifully orients us toward heaven and toward our resurrection hope. It says that according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading, unlike the stuff of this world that is perishable, defiled, and fading, that heavenly inheritance is not. And that is our living hope. And then finally, I chose the passage because I think it so wonderfully reminds God's people that not only is the inheritance being kept for us, but we are being kept for the inheritance. Listen to the way Peter says it. He says, we who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. God is guarding the inheritance for us, and he is guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And in that way, I think it's just one of the most clear and beautiful expressions of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. Uh, This doctrine that reminds us that God's people, those who've been chosen and redeemed in Christ, those who have been renewed by his Holy Spirit, are also kept through faith by the almighty power of God. Jesus said it this way in John 6. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And I think that there is something particularly fitting that in God's wisdom, it was the apostle Peter whom he chose to write these inspired words. Peter, who had so personally experienced the guarding power of God. Peter, who had had known what it was to be preserved through faith, through this spectacular fall. Peter, whose story of stumbling we've just read, which is recounted for us in all four of the Gospels. It's a witness not only to the weakness of men, but it is a witness to the extravagant and the extraordinary grace of God. Peter, who in spite of his great failure, could go on to speak of still having a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that as we consider this passage today, that the Lord would use it to make us all the more watchful about not only the dangers of pride and spiritual lethargy on the one hand, but also to make us more appreciative of the incredible and extravagant grace of Christ that is ours in the gospel. And so as we just sort of look at this epic collapse of Peter, I want to consider it under just a few points together. First, we're going to look at the demand for Peter as we consider the spiritual backdrop to this collapse, the demand for Peter. Uh, Secondly, we're going to consider the denial of Peter, as we consider the details of this collapse. And then finally, we'll consider the deliverance of Peter, as we consider the way in which the Lord would ultimately use this collapse to give Peter both a truer sense of his own need, uh, but also a truer sense of his Savior. Uh, And so as we look at these again, the demand for Peter, the denial of Peter, and the deliverance of Peter. First, the demand of Peter. And before we just dive right into the details, I think it's important that we, we have something of the spiritual backdrop to this collapse 
right? Peter is going to later write to the churches in this letter to 1 Peter about their need for humility. He's going to talk to them about their need to be uh, dependent upon Christ at all times. He'll say it in this way. He'll say, be sober-minded and be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's interesting that the same word that Peter uses for watchfulness there is the same word that Jesus used when he spoke to Peter and the disciples on the night of his arrest, and he called them to be watchful, to watch and to pray, lest they enter into temptation. And yet, while Christ called them to watchfulness, what did they do? They slept. Their sleep was a sort of picture, I think, of their spiritual lethargy, that they were unaware and unafraid of the adversary, the devil, who was on the prowl. And I think the point is that this collapse is part of a greater spiritual battle, a battle that Peter should have been aware of, because Jesus had warned him about this very thing. Luke 22 tells us that Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You hear in that the demand for Peter. Let me just say a couple of things about this statement. First is that the you in Greek is, is actually plural. Simon, Simon, uh, Satan has demanded to have ye, we might say, right? Or y'all. Uh, it's not just Peter. It's all of the disciples that the devil wants. They were to be included in the sifting. Uh, secondly, I, I want you to just think about how graphic this image actually is of sifting Peter. It's an image that the prophet Amos used when, the, when he said that the Lord would, would take Israel and shake them as one shakes a sieve. When wheat was sifted, the head of the grain was pulled apart and separated from the chaff. An, an equivalent English idiom might be picking someone to pieces or taking them apart. That's what the devil wants to do to the disciples of Christ. He wants to pick them apart. He wants to sift them like wheat. He wants to make shipwreck of their faith. He wants to bring them to spiritual ruin. And how does Peter respond to the Lord's warning? Does he respond with sober-mindedness and humility like he encourages us? To do? Not at all. He responds with just the opposite. He responds with pride and a real overconfidence in his abilities. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And even, even though all of the other disciples fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I'm with you. I've got your back. Satan has demanded to sift Peter like wheat. Jesus has warned him to be watchful and humble. And Peter has responded not only with spiritual lethargy, but with spiritual pride. And beloved, let me just tell you, that's a deadly cocktail. How many of you know that when you are overconfident, when you are prayerless, 
when you are unwatchful and you are proud, you are setting yourself up for shipwreck. The devil is demanding an intent on sifting Peter, and Peter is not ready. We've considered the the background and the demand for Peter. Let's go on to consider then the actual denial. Peter had said that he was ready to go to prison and to death with Jesus. Well, now he's given the, the perfect opportunity, isn't he? Here he is, in verse 58, we're told that he comes into the courtyard of the high priest, and who does he sit down with? He sits down with the guards. He sits down with those who are dressed with swords and clubs. If he's ready to go to prison and to death with Jesus, here you have it. This is your time. And yet, it's not before these guards. It's not an interrogation from one of them, one of these powerful men, that unravels him. Rather, it is this powerless young servant girl. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. And you notice that the the girl is not asking a question. She's making a statement. She knows that Peter was with him. What does Peter do? Well, he pulls the oldest trick in the book. He feigns ignorance. What, who, me? I, I don't know what you mean. Now, it's a denial to be sure. Matthew makes it clear. He says he denied it before them all. But it's not really an outright denial, is it? It's more of an attempt to deflect. It's kind of an attempt to divert attention away from himself. Are you talking to me? Because, yeah, I I don't know him. I don't even know what you're talking about. We know exactly what's going on here. Matthew Henry says, this weasel way of talking is a species of lying that we are more prone to than any other. We love to try to weasel our way out of things. And Peter is already floundering, right? In the ancient world, women, let alone servant girls, were not even allowed to serve as eyewitnesses in court. And yet Peter is completely undone by this simple statement that he was with Jesus. And that little word, with, I think really drills down on what this sifting is all about. Because that's the question. Is Peter with Jesus? Is he loyal to him? Will he stand with him? Will he be with him now in his hour of need? Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. And he tries to get out of Dodge, but even as he's trying to get out of Dodge, he's making his way out to the entrance. Here comes another servant girl. Man, they're everywhere. Unfortunately for Peter, this time she doesn't come to him directly. Instead, she turns to the others who are standing around and says exactly the same thing. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He was with Jesus. Is he still with Jesus? Now that the pressure is getting ratcheted up, is he still ready to go to prison and to death with him? Not even close, right? Uh, Now he's not just playing ignorant anymore. Now he's not just trying to deflect or divert. Now he's denying it with an oath. 
right? This is courtroom language. An oath is a, a solemn promise. Like when you raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Peter's truth is I don't know the man. Of course, there is no such thing as Peter's truth, is there? There's no such thing as my truth or your truth. There's just the truth. And though Peter swears with an oath that he is telling the truth, he's telling anything but the truth. And this is where it begins to to even get a bit comical. Because it's his swearing not to know the man. You have to imagine it now. He's swearing not to know the man. And that becomes his final undoing. In verse 73, the bystanders come to Peter and they say, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Galileans were known for having a very distinct local accent. Jesus and his disciples were all Galileans. They were all from the north. They were all visitors to Jerusalem. And as soon as they opened their mouths, you knew that they were from Galilee. This is how the first servant girl identified Jesus as Jesus the Galilean. And in fact, Jesus is the most famous Galilean who had ever lived. His reputation had preceded him to the south. They had heard of him. And that's why this is funny, because here Peter, in a perfect Galilean brogue, is claiming to not know the man. It would be like hearing Mark Wahlberg in that perfect Baston accent, right? Swearing that he'd never heard of Larry Bird. It's comical. It's delusional. Sin is delusional, isn't it? And in his delusion, what does he do? He begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know the man. I wish I could do the Galilean accent. I don't know what it is. I do not know the man. He's not swearing in the sense of cussing. Right? He's swearing in the sense that he's invoking God's presence and his punishment. What is not exactly clear, though, is who he is cursing. Uh, it seems obvious in our ESV translation or whatever translation you're using because the ESV translates this as a reflexive. He began to invoke a curse on himself. That's what the ESV says. In which case, it would mean that he's, of course, calling on God to punish him if he's lying, right? Um, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle through my eye. The difficulty, though, is that the cursing verb is not ordinarily reflexive. It's ordinarily transitive. You ordinarily use this to curse others. In which case, this would be all the more heinous and disturbing because it would mean not that Peter was invoking a curse on himself, but that he was actually invoking a curse on Christ. The one who once confessed Christ now joins in the cursing of him. And no sooner have those words left his mouth than what do we read? And immediately... The rooster crowed. Luke tells us that while he was still speaking, the words are not even out of his mouth, 
and the rooster crowed. And Luke tells us, and the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Can you imagine that look? How that look must have cut Peter to the heart. Suddenly, he is shaken from the delusion. And we're told that Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. We've considered the demand for Peter and the denials of Peter. Finally, let's consider the deliverance of Peter. It begins with the rooster crowing. Matthew presents this to us in harrowing artistic fashion. Inside the palace of Caiaphas, they're striking Jesus. They're spitting in his face. They're pulling on his beard. They're, they're calling on him to prophesy, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And at the very same moment, outside of the courtyard, one of his prophecies is coming true. You're a prophet? Great. Tell us, tell us, you prophet. You who know things in advance, tell us, who's hitting you? And at that very moment, one of his prophecies is coming true. Truly, I tell you, this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. Who is it that struck you? Jesus might well have answered, Peter. As it might well be said of any of us. The hymn writer puts it like this, "'Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee, I crucified thee. And so in God's most holy, wise, and powerful providence, the rooster becomes the servant of Christ to rouse Peter from his delusion and to break his heart. Sin leads to bitter tears. It leads to bitter tears. Tears over the wreckage that sin brings about in our lives, tears of shame and regret. You young people here, you who are, are constantly being told by the world that sin is pleasurable and fun, let me just tell you, sin leads to bitter tears. It will break your heart. It will leave you empty. It will fill you up with shame and regret but hopefully it also leads to grief and sorrow for sin. Hopefully, those tears also lead to, to sorrow over denying the one who has never denied us. One commentator puts it like this, and I think this is really useful. He says, Peter is in a much healthier spiritual condition when he was weeping bitterly after his fall than he was when he was swearing undying loyalty to Jesus. You might look at people and think, wow, they're, they're really spiritually healthy because they're swearing such undying loyalty to Christ. It may be that we are much more spiritually healthy when we are broken and humbled and weeping bitterly 
Don't misunderstand me. I am not telling you that it's better to fall than to stand. It's better to stand, always. It's just to say that when we repent after a fall, we're often left with a truer sense of our need for Christ. We're often left with a truer sense of God's grace to deliver us. And it's often these trials that God uses to change us and to transform us. Bruner says, an unbroken Peter would have been an unbearable Peter. Praise the Lord that he broke Peter. God's best wine is made in the cellar of affliction. That's not my words. Some Puritan said that, but I can't remember who it was. But God's best wine is made in the cellar of affliction. And Jesus is willing to have Peter broken that he might be healed and restored. Remember that when Jesus warned Peter of Satan's demand, he also made Peter a promise. You remember what he said? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But he didn't end there. He went on to say, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In reading the letter of 1 Peter, I am persuaded that when Peter wrote those words that we are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed, I'm persuaded he was reflecting on these words of Jesus. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter knew, he understood what it was to be guarded through faith because he had a Savior who was praying for him that his faith would not fail. That at the very moment Satan was doing his worst to pick him apart and to sift him like wheat, even in the moment that he was denying Jesus, Jesus was not denying Peter. Jesus was praying for him. And even if Peter was not with Jesus, Jesus was with Peter, praying for him, preserving him, guarding him through faith. I love that way of putting it, that by God's power, we are being guarded through faith. Because what is faith? Faith is just what we call in theological terms a passive instrument. Faith receives and it rests on the strength of another. Martin Luther said that faith was extrospective. That is, it looks outside of itself. Faith doesn't look inward. Faith doesn't look inside of my own heart. Faith looks outward. It looks to Christ. It looks to his righteousness. It looks to his perfections. It looks to his meritorious obedience. It looks to his sacrifice. Indeed, faith is only as strong as the object of our faith. You can trust in all kinds of things. But what what actually can save you? Who actually can save you? Faith looks to Jesus. Peter's deliverance began to be realized the very moment that rooster began crowing as he remembered the words of Jesus and that promise that Jesus made him. And I believe it's his weeping 
his bitter tears are not just tears of regret. They're tears of repentance as his faith begins to rise. You know, I think there is something particularly wonderful about Jesus' choice of a rooster. That that was the vehicle that Jesus chose to bring about Peter's repentance. And I was, I was contemplating this as I was thinking about this sermon, and I was like, why did, of all the things that Jesus could have chosen, why did he choose a rooster? Well, let me put it this way. Do you think this is the last time Peter would hear a rooster? Or do you think that every single morning for the rest of his life, Peter would wake up to the sound of a rooster crowing? That every morning, Christ was pleased to put a reminder of Peter's weakness before him. That every morning, Christ was pleased to give him a reminder of his need to be humble, to be sober-minded, to be watchful. That every morning, Christ would give him not only these reminders of his weakness and of his need to be humble, but that Christ would give him a reminder of his grace and of the living hope that he had through the resurrection of the dead. Doesn't it just make you want to go get a rooster? Maybe you can set your alarm on your phone to a rooster so that every morning you can wake up again and know that God's mercies are new again this morning. That in spite of my great failures, in spite of the many ways in which I have denied my Savior, God's grace is sufficient this day. And he calls me to be all the more watchful. He calls me to be diligent and prayerful. He calls me to be humble and sober-minded. In the absence of owning a rooster, I pray that the Lord might be pleased to use this crowing of his servant Peter to remind us of our great need, that we might be humble, sober-minded, watchful, that we might remember that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, but that we might also remember that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Almighty God, We thank you for this rooster. We thank you for the instruments that you use in our life to shake us out of the delusion of our sin, to humble us, to drive us back to you for grace and mercy in time of need. And Lord, we pray that you would do this even today through the reading and the preaching of your word, uh, that you would be pleased to wake us up and to make us depend upon you all the more. And Lord, even now as we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we, we pray that we might find here a sign of your grace to us that you give us every week to remind us not only of what our sins deserve, but to remind us also of your willingness to undertake all that our sins deserve 
in order that we might be reconciled and have life and fellowship, that we might have the forgiveness of our transgressions, iniquity, and sin. So we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.